3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Hello, Malika, and hello, Rosie, in the other studio. Good morning. Good morning from afar through the window. Yeah, it might actually end up being... uh, three of us in three different studios uh, from next week, depending on how case numbers go. But fingers crossed uh, it doesn't come to that. Although I do, um, I am enjoying learning uh, all the ins and outs of how to use various studios in 3CR. It's true, but I do miss you. You're far away. <laughs> I know. It's, um, it is difficult, but we, we all have to do what we can, right? Stay, stay distant, get vaccinated if you can, um, you know, keep uh, up to date with exposure sites because they're popping up all over the place. And yeah, um, you know, just be be careful and do the right thing. Yeah, make sure check in with your friends and family. It's mm. getting pretty tough. Yeah, and I mean, especially considering that uh, there's so much uncertainty as well. I was talking to a friend yesterday about you know you know how do they how do they stay motivated um, as a parent of young children? Mm. How do they provide children with any certainty as well? So, um, really important to stay in touch with people, make sure you can provide the kinds of support that you can, but take care of yourself too. It's hard out there. For yeah. sure. What do we have on the show this week? So today on, oh my goodness, Thursday the 2nd of September, I, I cannot believe that we are in September already, but at least it's a nice morning. Rosie, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so first up, we're going to hear from James and Jackson from Uprise Radio, who caught up with Friends of the Earth campaign coordinator Cam Walker to discuss the release of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report. Um, While wildfires rage in Greece, Turkey and North American drought worsens, Australia's political leadership remains obstinately wed to fossil fuel producers and climate denialists. So Cam talks about the report's strengths and its weaknesses and campaigning opportunities in the lead up to the looming federal election. Mm. We will then be speaking with a Victorian high school arts and woodworks teacher who has taught um, across regional and metro areas as well as overseas in London. They are currently teaching at an inner city public school and will be joining us to talk about the challenges of teaching through the recurring lockdowns in Nam. And then, oh, after that, you oh. want to go ahead, Malika? Yeah, sure. We'll then also be speaking with Hila Asala, an Afghan-Australian who moved to Australia 30 years ago with her family. In addition to practicing as a commercial lawyer, she spends a considerable amount of time giving back to community by advising not-for-profits, as well as being the director of Edmund Rice Camps, Victoria. She joins us to talk about the current situation in Afghanistan following the U.S. withdrawal of troops, as well as how the non-Afghan community can stand in solidarity with the Afghan community over the coming months. 
And then we'll be speaking with Brendan Kennedy, a Tati Tati elder from Victoria's Northwest. He is the director of Tati Tati Kaijin, an artist, a teacher and a linguist. And Brendan is joining Thursday Breakfast this morning to talk about water rights and returning cultural flows to Maguya Lagoon, a permanent wetland on the Murray River in northern Victoria. Um, and a new report produced by Environmental Justice Australia, Australia lays out a plan for how this important action can proceed. Yeah, and um, finally, we are joined by Kristen O'Connell, a friend of the show, longtime guest of the show, who does research and policy at the Anti-Poverty Centre. And Kristen joins us to speak about the ongoing need to raise the rate and pay people to stay home. And you can see heaps of calls for that with hashtag pay people to stay home on social media, particularly Twitter. And Kristen's also going to provide some updates on the mutual obligations bill and also the Anti-Poverty Centre and People with Disability Australia's joint submission to the inquiry into the disability support pension. So massive show as usual. Um, you know, we we don't want to disappoint you with, uh, you know, with with too little content last year when we were broadcasting remotely. It was pretty difficult to get everything together. But now everything seems to be flooding in. So, um, I mean, if Kristen can manage to cover all of that in a 12 minute slot, I will be very impressed. I mean, if anyone can do it, if anyone can do it, Kristen can. Yeah, we uh, we had a little bit of a. We, we had some bants yesterday uh, about how we might fit it all in, but, um, you know, uh, I'll just text her and be like, hurry along. <laughs> yeah, no, I believe, I believe. All right. Well, we might uh, jump into some community service announcements before we head to the headlines. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Gosh, that little pause always makes me jump just for a second. Yeah, we've got it now, though. You're just like, yep, and there's a pause, and then it's from the community sector. Got it, got it, got it. All right, let's jump into some headlines. So these are the headlines for the 2nd of September. More than 200 jobs could be cut at Deakin University under proposed restructure, the ABC reports. University administration claims the restructure is in response to financial pressures caused by the pandemic. This follows job cuts at the university in 2020, which saw 400 roles cut. The higher education sector has shed nearly 20,000 jobs during the pandemic, with institutions largely denied access to JobKeeper, the Guardian reports. Meanwhile, an article by distinguished professor James Guthrie published in Campus Morning Mail outlines how the University of Melbourne finances are far stronger than they appear due to the use of imprecise language. The article goes on to argue that the true 2020 surplus for the University of Melbourne is $178 million, not the $8 million announced by the Vice-Chancellor Duncan Muskell earlier this year. The article closes by noting that for the 36 Australian institutions, that is universities, that have published their 2020 financial accounts, all but one have achieved surpluses on cash transactions, an increase averaging around 3.5%. 
As the COVID-19 outbreak continues in New South Wales, AAP journalist Hannah Ryan reports that as, as of late Tuesday, 112 prisoners in New South Wales had tested positive for COVID-19. 61 in Parkley, 1 in Silverwater Women's, 50 in MRRC at Silverwater. Correction Services New South Wales announced on Monday that all prisons would go into lockdown in response to the outbreak, The Guardian Australia reports. Vaccination rates in New South Wales prisons have finally been released to Croaky News with editor Marie McKerney posting on Twitter that 21% of patients in custody are fully vaccinated and 42% have had one dose. Calls have been made for prisoners to be released, um, in particular those on remand since the pandemic began. However, government have reiterated that they are not considering release at this stage. A warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this next story discusses Aboriginal people who have passed. Following the tragic death of four Noongar women on the streets of Perth in the last two months, Noongar women experiencing homelessness have come together to demand action, NITV reports. The group are drawing attention to the difficulty of accessing services and housing for people living on Perth streets and are demanding the WA government do more to address the housing crisis. Noongar woman Vanessa Kalbong, who is currently homeless in Perth, asks, how can we deal with any of our social issues if we don't have the foundation first? Housing. Legislation passed in the House of Representatives on Monday will protect confidential information provided to a Royal Commission beyond the life of the Royal Commission. The amendments to the Royal Commission Act 1902 will remove a significant barrier that has prevented people with disability engaging with the Disability Royal Commission. The amendment will apply retroactively, meaning that any confidential submissions made to the Disability Royal Commission will now be treated as such after the commission process has ended, and submissions can be made by telephone on 1800 517 199 via email at drce. N-Q-U-I-R-E-I-E-S, so that's DRC Enquiries at royalcommission.gov.au or through their website disability.royalcommission.gov.au. And finally, due to ongoing lockdowns, the Australian Museum's exhibition Unsettled can now be visited virtually online. The exhibition uncovers the untold histories behind the nation's foundation story. First Nation voices reveal the hidden stories of devastation, survival and the fight for recognition and first-hand accounts are presented through long-hidden historical documents, large-scale artworks, immersive experiences and never-before-seen objects from the Australian Museum's collection and beyond and the virtual online tour of the exhibition can be accessed by visiting australian.museum.learn.firstnations.unsettled but I think if you just go to Australian.museum. Um, and, and have a look through their website. You'll be able to find it there. And that is all for Thursday morning headlines. Just going to cheekily add something in. Um, for anyone who might want to listen to some great music today, um, from today from 2.50 p.m. till 11 p.m., um, Australian musicians will be standing um, for Afghanistan um, in a special, um, one-off special of Isolate. So tune in to different artists like um, Didiri, Emily Wuramara, Georgia Mack, um, and the Pierce Brothers on their Instagram handles or head to isolatefestival.com to watch the live stream. That's I-S-O-L-A-I-D-F-E-S-T-I-V-A-L.com from um, around 2.50 today. 
Yeah, and um, finally, we'll wrap up with some really important fundraisers that are ongoing at the moment. So, first of all, reminding people that the free Victor Yemo uh, fundraiser is still going, and that is to raise health care and legal fees for West Papuan activist Victor Yemo, who has been detained as a political uh, a political prisoner by the Indonesian government. And he's really unwell right now. He's been isolated in prison and denied adequate medical attention. And so uh, supporters are raising him, uh, yeah, raising money for his uh yeah, medical treatment and legal fees, and you can find that by looking up healthcare and legal fees for West Papuan activist Victor Yemo, that is Y-E-I-M-O on Chuffed. And also an important reminder that the fundraiser is still going for uh, raising money for the Wilcannia community, um, and COVID-19 has hit the Wilcannia community really, really hard. Um, you know, it, it is absolutely appalling that this has been allowed to happen and people are trying to mobilize support to make sure that people have, um, you know, access to the basic supplies that they need. So there is a fundraiser on GoFundMe and you can find it by looking up Far West NSW Fresh Fruit and Veggie COVID-19. And that is to uh, yeah donate some essential funds towards uh, getting supplies for people in Wilcannia who are really yeah, struggling under under this horrible um, wave of COVID-19 and the Aboriginal communities in regional New South Wales have really been doing it tough during this time. Um, yeah, just, I, I don't know. What, what, else, what else is there to say? It's just appalling the way that this has been allowed to happen. I know, I feel like um, recently we've really been uh, kind of, promoing and trying to um, share a lot of uh, GoFundMe pages and different fundraisers. I mean, we always do, but at the moment it is just um, kind of despicable that it, it, these communities need, need so much support from, um, from the community rather than government who should have, you know, had a plan. Um, community have been calling out for a plan, have been, you know, really worried about what COVID could do um, if it did spread to these communities. And yeah, it's just appalling, but um, given the situation, it is really crucial that people, um, if you can, get behind these communities and, you know, help them um, to get through this really, really tough time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it is it is not easy, but um, we're hoping to hoping to bring you some interviews that shed a bit more light on this over the over the following few weeks. And uh, just a reminder, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.15 in the morning. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march, and we say... Yeah, nah. Yen Up Iran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're on 3CR 855 AM on the Thursday Breakfast Show. And coming up now, you're going to hear 
um, an interview from or by James Jackson and Mercedes from Uprise Radio, who caught up with Friends of the Earth campaign coordinator Cam Walker to discuss the release of the Intergovern- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report. And while wi- wildfires rage in Greece, Turkey and the North American drought worsens, Australia's political leadership remains obstinately wed to fossil fuel producers and climate denialists. So Cam talks about the report's strengths and weaknesses and campaigning opportunities in the lead-up to the looming federal election. So this conversation is part of a two-part special, and the full discussion can be found at www.3cr.org.au forward slash uprise radio. But here's that first part. The IPCC report was released on the 8th of August, and in the midst of a world still coming to terms with the global health pandemic, many of the nation states that are unable to handle the current pandemic also the very same who have dragged the world behind on climate action. The report and the reporting of the report comes from a starting point of what the world would look like if action was taken today to pull back to net zero emissions. But that's clearly not happening, even if some progress has been made in recent times with the US and China. It's a stark warning of the global terror that awaits, even if significant action is taken, but not taken in time. The COVID-19 pandemic is a serious health crisis that is impacting capitalism in a way not seen since the world wars. But it will pale into comparison to what life would look like without serious changes on how the climate is viewed and cared for. We know big actions are needed, particularly in Australia, with a government who won't hold the hose to put out fires and an opposition with almost no climate policy. But one organisation that's been at the forefront of action on climate for many years is Friends of the Earth. Joining us on the show is a media spokesperson for FOE and someone who does hold the hose, Cam Walker. Hello, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us, Cam. And yes, you do hold the hose out there, um, Castle Maine, and have been a part of, you know, pretty horrendous bushfire season last yeah, I wonder if um, before we get into the report itself, and you know, I know you're probably the most knowledgeable person I can think of to talk about some of the impacts around, you know, our ecosystems and what it means. Some of the things detailed in the report. But how did you know? Even for for all of your you know expertise and knowledge of years of climate activism, how did it feel being a part of? Uh, um, you know, the bushfires last season and and being on the front line of that? You know, it was actually a really good thing. It seems like a strange thing to say, but, um, you know, as as you know, I've spent a lot of time working on climate campaigning and environmental campaigning, and a lot of the places that I love, I see them burning more and more frequently. So, of course, we live in a landscape that has co-evolved with fire. Many ecosystems are fire-dependent or at least fire-tolerant. But what's happening is a lot of key ecosystems, and the ones I know best are up in the mountains, the alpine ash, the mountain ash, the snow gum woodlands, the peatlands, they're getting fires more frequently. So a snow gum forest might get you know, a, a fire every 50 years or 80 years, and now they're getting it every 12 years and then every 10 years. So that was the impetus for me to sign on as a volunteer firefighter, um, and that was watching an area that I knew burning for the third time in basically a decade. So in a very weird way, uh, you know, it's, it's been good for my climate grief. Um, you're just one person amongst hundreds and sometimes among thousands, but really all we can do is what we can do. And, uh, yeah, I feel really uh, good to be involved in, in firefighting where I can. And you spoke there about climate grief, and I think that, 
uh, it's hard not to kind of have that kind of reaction to the report itself, isn't it? Because as I said in the introduction that, you know, we really now, and I think, you know, the Morrison government in particular are really falling really far behind on, you know, any kind of um, procedure forward to do our bid. And it's not just, you know, as Morrison and this government might say that we're a small nation, but, you know, it's what we export to India and China and, and other states there. You know, we've heard again recently talk of building a um, nuclear, of nuclear power station. You know, these kind of debates that, you know, we've been around hearing for, for many, many years now and still no real progress forward. What can we do and how do we combat this kind of climate grief that the report can give many of us? Yeah, so it is really hard and, and hard to process and hard to deal with. And especially when you think that the IPCC report, in a way, there's nothing new in it. Anyone that's been reading the science knows all that stuff anyway. And what we know about the IPCC process is it's inherently conservative because what happens is it's a consensus document. So if there's anything everyone doesn't agree on, then it gets trimmed out. And there was something like 230 researchers who worked on the report. So imagine how hard it is to get consensus between 230 people. So a lot of the, you know, the possibly the fringe stuff is, is pulled out and some of the more dire ones and some of the details that, you know, haven't really been cross-collaborated, uh, uh, affirmed as yet. Um, but the other thing is, it has a process where they close the books on the research and then review it, and then that results in the report, which is what this is, the, the six IPCC report. So it's already out of date because they're looking at research from several years ago. So knowing all that, it's just terrifying uh, to think what's coming. Um, it just reaffirmed yet again that we know that humans are driving global warming. We know that we've already warmed by more than one degree Celsius against background temperatures. We know that um, we're going to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius mid-century no matter what. We know that if we don't act now, we're going to at least go to three degrees. Um, and there's some really interesting data in there around sea level rise. And, um, you know, uh, we've had 20 centimetres of sea level rise since 1900. The rate of rise has, has tripled in the last decade. If we can hold the warming to two degrees Celsius, we're still locked into half a metre of, of sea level rise, uh, basically by the end of this century. If we go past um, the two degrees Celsius um, uh, level, then we might get two metres of warming. So whichever way you look at this, heat, impact on ecosystems, impact on humans, you know, we're, we're, we're not built to live in 50 degrees Celsius, you know, we die at those temperatures. If you look at agriculture, if you look at the mountains, if you look at the mangroves, if you look at the oceans, all the details are horrifying. And so the only sane response to a report like this is grief and alarm and fear and hopefully also a bit of anger and determination, anger at the leaders who fail us. And we know that the federal government has failed us comprehensively. We know that the federal government is controlled by climate deniers. We know they're closely aligned with the fossil fuel industry. We know we're in step, we're in step with the Murdoch press that throw denial out at every, you know, step um, of movement. We know that they're connected with the right wing think tank. So anger is a really reasonable response. But also so is hope, and we have hope if we get organised because the IPCC report yet again said, look, we know how to get out of this. We actually have the technology to do this. 
the, the movement on, on renewables and efficiency and storage is astonishing, you know, and if you think back just a couple of decades when this was all developmental kind of technology in the testing phase, it's all now proven, it's all now good to go and it's now all cheaper than fossil fuel. So there's hope, but to see that hope realised, we've got to have political activity and we've got to accept the scale of the opposition that we face, and that is, without being too, you know, paranoid about it, basically the entire political system is still controlled by people who are either climate deniers uh, in their belief or climate deniers just because it suits their political purpose. So we have a huge uphill battle, but the key take-home message from IPCC is we have a chance to avoid catastrophic global warming, but only if we act now. And that was the first part of an interview with Cam Walker on uh, Uprise Radio with James Jackson and Mercedes. And Cam Walker is from Friends of the Earth. He's a campaign coordinator and joined them to discuss the release of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report. He spoke about the report's strengths and weaknesses and campaigning opportunities in the lead up to the looming federal election. And just a reminder that this conversation is part of a two-part special and the full discussion can be found at www.3cr.org.au forward slash uprise radio. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast. It is just gone 7.25 in the morning, and we might head to a track now. So we're going to go to Grateful for the Heartache, which is Simona Kastrikum's new single. And also, just a little plug, Simona is a presenter on 3RRR, um, one of our sibling radio stations, and uh, 3RRR, uh, sorry, on Triple R's Radiothon is happening at the moment as well. So you can head to triplerr.org.au as well. But this is Grateful for the Heartache by Simona Kastrikum.
You are listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Um, you just heard that awesome track by Simona Castricum called Grateful for the Heartache. Um, a really nice tune this early in the morning. We will now be jumping into an interview with a Victorian high school art and woodsworks teacher who's currently teaching at an inner city public school. And they are joining us this morning to talk about the challenges of teaching through these recurring lockdowns in Nam. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, really excited to be chatting with you this morning and talking a bit more about what your experiences have been like um, during these lockdowns as a teacher. And I guess, like, there's a first question. What has these lockdowns been like for you as a teacher? Yeah, um, it's been a roller coaster and quite difficult um, a lot of the time, um, particularly uh, in the last couple of months we've gone in and out of lockdowns like quite suddenly. Yeah. It takes a lot to kind of tell the kids that we're going back home and then back to school and back home again and um, they've just been really out of their routine and uh, it's been really challenging for them and for us as teachers. I can imagine, yeah, I can't even begin to imagine like I have friends and family that are teachers and just like hearing having of them to like change curriculum and like how they set up classes and stuff, it sounds so challenging. Yeah, it really is. Um, and also just like the impact on young people. Like I know that many young people are reporting exacerbated mental health and well-being issues. Um, and with many young people reaching out to teachers first before even like GPs or mental health services, I can imagine that there is this increasing workload. And what has it been like to have to carry these stories and not have as many opportunities for like chats with teachers or even like informal or formal debriefs? Yeah, we are lucky to have like really good mental health team at our school who are always willing to help. But uh, taking on that um, information from students who are struggling and not able to just pop in and say hello, um, it makes it really hard to like follow up with it and to mm. check in with them just with a casual conversation, how you normally would. Um, but yeah, that debriefing, um, as you mentioned, is so crucial in our day-to-day yeah. um, and we really miss it, yeah. Yeah, because you, you would be carrying those stories and, like, thinking about your lesson plans and corrections mm. and all of that. It just, I can imagine, just piles on and on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it kind of feels like there's no end mm. to what we need to do and that's kind of, there's a um, spotlight on that when we are at home because there isn't that distraction of going to class or... Yeah. Um, it's recess time when you might actually just have a break. There's um, a lot of screen time and it's always, it's, there's always something to do. Oh, yeah, I can imagine having the computer right there at all times. It just makes it harder to kind of separate from everything. And, like, speaking of screen time, um, like, I can imagine that for many teachers, they're noticing students, like, having lowered motivation um, and, like, reduced engagement due to Zoom fatigue. What has been your experience kind of witnessing this as a teacher? Yeah, it's, it's they start off quite um, capable and re- really into it, and but then it doesn't take long for them to very quickly um, lose their motivation. And even those really strong kids who are, who are quite happy to be and finish work on time, they also really start to struggle mm. with the workload and keeping up. So, mm. yeah. Does, all, and I just think they're, they're so young, like they're not meant to be yeah. learning this way either. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, like no matter how resilient they are, it's still yeah. a huge toll. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I think like another thing is like a lot of people assume that all students in Victoria have access to the right technology to attend classes and like complete homework and things like that. But the reality is there are differences in digital access. And how has that impacted your teaching or from what you've heard from your colleagues? Yeah, I mean, mostly our kids have been set up with some sort of device that they can access the class content um, and maybe some are on iPads, which might take them a little bit more time to mm. type their work out and things. But we, we have options for those students who don't have digital or any kind of um, laptop. We have options to get them set up at home. Mm. Mm. Um, but in terms of trying to teach, um, like art and woodwork oh, yeah. online, um, <laughs> that has been like a huge shift and completely changing everything that we've had to teach. Um, pursuit online has been a lot, yeah. Yeah, because like, how do you teach woodwork online? Like, do they do, you, do they all get their own set of tools at home, or is it just kind of like more of a digital experience? Yeah, I wish they all had their own little <laughs> tools, workshops at home. Um, but we just have to be uh, quite creative in what we give them. So it might be something like, um, like how far can you fly a paper plane, or mm. um, you know, how build, how high can you build a tower? So you have to kind of be like, what what resources do they have at home and how can you work with that? Yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah, it just, I can't, I can't even begin to imagine how creative you have to be as a teacher during this time to kind of adapt all the learning, especially when it's there's a lot of, like, practical learning, how to kind of change that into a more of a visual experience, hey? Yeah, absolutely. We've um, spent a lot of time making new resources that, are quite short and punchy so that they only last um, one or two lessons. Mm. And, like, the next week we'll move on to something new. And, yeah, you have to be kind of prepared for them to have a pencil and paper and and that's kind of it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And have you found that your workload has increased significantly with these added responsibilities to, like, not only manage student well-being but also, like, filter through parent inquiries as well as, like, adapting your classes to this digital environment? Mm. Um, yeah, well, part of my role, cause, because I'm a coordinator, that that's already kind of my job yeah. to be checking in with students and having frequent contact with parents. But it is much harder. Like, I wish, wish I could just, you know, go into their classes and, and talk to the students that way and check in with them. But it has to be quite the time-consuming part, I guess, is always having to plan when you're going mm. to talk to the students or the parents next. Mm. Um, and it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't happen as organically as it would if yeah. we were at yeah, I can. Yeah, because like rather than you just like catching a parent after like during like pick up or drop off something, you have to like pencil it in and like everyone's yeah. got all like these schedules and everything. So it would just take so much time to just organize like this five minute chat. Or yeah, something. absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And do you do you find that like with like parent inquiries and stuff, um, rather than like a parent dropping in, you're kind of having to filter in through way more emails. Like rather than yeah. it being that five minute chat, it's like maybe sixty emails that you have to like yeah, filter through. Yeah, the emails that are normally a quick conversation, they're what take a lot of time. It can be quite drawn out when really it could just be, you know, a five-minute conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 
the emails are probably something that has, in, has increased a lot. Oh, yeah. I don't even want to know what your email list looks like <laughs> as a coordinator. Yeah, it's a lot. And through all of this, have there been any positives, like kind of transitioning to these kind of online models of learning? Um, what have been the positives that you've witnessed? Yeah. Well, as you said, um, transitioning to online, we are very like literate with being online now. Yeah. You know, some of the um, teachers who have been teaching a long time, they've kind of been given that opportunity to learn how to use um, the programs that we're using um, and to be a bit more confident with that. Mm. Um, and maybe in, in some cases it does give us more time to prepare mm-hmm. engaging resources and to actually have time to sit and make documents and things like that where you don't sometimes when you're at school you don't have time to do that yeah yeah um, yeah and like from from students as well maybe students that thrive more like not in the school environment it's given them that opportunity to like learn in that home environment. Maybe they feel more productive or more safe or whatever that might look like. It's just yeah. giving students a different way of learning when maybe they didn't thrive in that kind of traditional sit at a desk in front of a teacher in a classroom for eight hours a day sort of thing. Yeah, I think it definitely suits like a small portion of students. Mm. Maybe. Um, but not the whole. But yeah, yeah, overall, I think... Um, would be more productive at school yeah no for sure well thank you so much for joining us today and like kind of sharing your experiences as a teacher and everything you've noticed as a teacher and as a coordinator I think um uh, like hats off to teachers like I had respect to them before pandemic but now more so than (laughs) ever like hats off to all of the teacher teachers and the whole teaching community you're doing such an incredible job Oh, thanks so much. No, thank you so much. We just heard from a Victorian high school arts and woodworks teacher um, who currently teaches teaches at an inner city public school and they joined us to talk about the challenges of teaching through these recurring lockdowns in Nam. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is 7.42 in the morning and uh, we are uh, about to go to another interview. So uh, Malika, I might just pop you on now. Yes. 
Thank you. Um, we are joined today by Hila Asala, an Afghan-Australian um, woman who has been practicing commercial law for around 10 years, but um, in addition to that, spends a considerable amount of time giving back to community by advising not-for-profits as well as being the director of the Edmund Rice Camps Victoria. And she's joining us this morning to talk about the current situation in Afghanistan following the U.S. withdrawal of troops, as well as how the non-Afghan community can stand in solidarity with the Afghan community over the coming months. Good morning, Hila. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Um, it's so beautiful this morning. It really feels like spring, hey? It does, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, for listeners joining in today, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and the incredible work you've been doing to support the Afghan community um, over the last few months? Um, absolutely. I might just go back to um, the fact that this week marks 30 years that um, uh, me and my family have been in this wonderful country. Mm. Um, so, you know, 30 years ago, we made the hard journey to also become refugees. Mm. Um, and, you know, opportunity came and Australia gave us an opportunity uh, to have a better life and... Uh, not only just to survive, but to thrive. And here we are 30 years later. Um, And that opportunity has been just to have a fair go, have a voice, um, have an opportunity to to further life and to live in peace um, and harmony and, you know, with dignity and respect. Mm. So I'm I'm very appreciative, um, Mm. you know, in light of what's um, unveiled in the last fortnight. Um, You know, I've managed to get myself um, a decent education and Mm. um, have had a very fulfilling career. Mm. Um, I have, you know, a sister who is an obstetrician. I have a sister who, you know, who works with with aged care system. So um, we've been the lucky ones. Um, Mm. So I guess um, this just shows that, um, you know, Afghans can add a lot of value to the Australian community. And I'm not one. There are many, many, many. So true. Others just like me. Mm. Um, so the last fortnight's been tough. Um, I'm going to try and keep my voice uh, from breaking because yeah. I still get quite emotional about what's happened. Um, uh, you know, if you'd rang me last week or the week before, I probably wouldn't be able to get in any words out because I was completely in shock, quite yeah. saddened and... Um, just had no idea what to do. Um, you yeah. know, in 24 hours, um, pretty much um, I lost my motherland to um, warlords. Um, yeah. And that's just, um, it's not just scary for um, humanity, it's scary for, for all of us, the West, because if um, um, a group of extremists can take over so easily yeah, um, and find a breeding ground, well, we're all kind of in trouble. So... I don't know what it all means and how it happened and why it happened and many, many theories have been floating around. But mm. at the end of the day, um, I'm just sad for my people. They're yeah. human. Yeah. Um, and they have done nothing. They have never asked for wars. They've never asked to be treated the way they've been. And, and you know, in the last 20 years, we've made so many advances um, in the country, both in women's rights, human mm. rights, you know, education, media, journalism, sports. 
Um, and we lost it all. We lost it all in 24 hours, and yeah. that's just devastating. Mm. I think there is a sense of collective grief um, amongst the Afghan and non-Afghan community at the moment, and it's kind of incomprehensible to kind of think about how much has changed in such a short amount of time. Hey, Absolutely. Um, um, so I guess, and, and I think we all feel the same pain. I mm. I mean, as, as Afghans, as an Af- Afghan community, both locally and globally, mm. everybody felt the same. They were mm. paralysed. Then they went through the moment of grief and shock and then anger. And then they thought, we need to say something. We need to stand up. So, yeah. um, And that's, I guess, where, you know, I, I, I thought, well, I can't just sit here and, and, and cry all day. And, mm. um, you know, in the midst of a lockdown when our mental health is already... At breaking point, yeah. um, you know, this just added to that um, to that distress, that feeling of helplessness, that um, you know, that, that, that level of um, just not knowing what to do. Mm. Um, I'm I'm really lucky. I have many um, groups within the community that are so worldly and so empathetic and. Um, will do anything to to help, um, mm. uh, you know, to to apply their skills to assist communities and human beings. Yeah. So I guess, you know, a week after recovering from my shock and sadness, I thought I need to do something. Yeah. Um, as an individual, there's only so much you can do when you're so far away from the mm. cause, mm. but there is still a lot you can do um, because a lot of what's happened. Um, comes from the West. Um, So I guess I spent many, many, many hours reaching out to um, a lot of the people that I graduated um, university with. So a lot of the people I did law with have very prominent positions in the community. Um, They're lawyers, barristers, uh, members of parliament, um, and they're good humans. So I reached out to every single one of them personally. Um, I wrote to them. I spoke to them. They encouraged me to write wider and and, and bigger and stronger, yeah. um, and I did that. So I spent countless hours writing and writing and emailing um, and lobbying and petitioning, um, you know, both the Scott Morrison government yeah. and um, any other individual that I knew had a platform to voice mm. um uh, the concerns, the voice, the current situation, mm. um, to be the voice that we couldn't be, to be the voice um, to those innocent um, yeah. that had no voice. Um, so, I mean, that's what I spent time doing. Um, yeah. And then um, I guess the next thing I thought was, right, um, it seems like the momentum had picked up and there was a lot of people lobbying. So I thought, what else can I do? Um, and I attended a couple of um, sessions with the community and some of the MPs about, you know, immigration and what we can do. And we realised that, you know what, this is a great opportunity to be able to get as many people over here. I mean, the quota is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's only 3,000 and 3,000 will fill up in a day, uh, probably in an hour, actually. Yes, yeah. Um, so I reached out to a large group of female lawyers um, Australia-wide. It's a closed group and i pretty much just said I need anybody who has any skills in immigration mm. uh, to help me out and a large number reached out to me. So, so awesome. through their help, 
which was kind, and they are not Afghan, not one of them. Mm. Um, so through a generous non-Afghan community, I was able to connect people um, to complete, um, you know, visa applications. Mm. I did a large sum, and mm. they helped out. Mm. Um, so that was amazing. Yeah, and I think like one of the most remarkable things from all of this is like how quickly the Afghan and non-Afghan community have like come together to mobilize and like provide such a quick response for something that usually might take like weeks or months to do. But to like the number of like visa applications you were saying you've kind of been able to kind of complete in um, collaboration with other lawyers and stuff like it, it's just all been so quick and like that's just been so incredibly remarkable and like one of these examples is like on Saturday, August the 28th, there were rallies held across the world to show up for people, for the people of Afghanistan. And here in Nam, there was also like a Zoom rally. Again, these things are just created so quickly. Like what was it like to see so many people standing together and attending together um, to show their support for the people of Afghanistan? Oh, it was incredible. It was very moving. Mm-hmm. Um in my lifetime, I've never really seen anything like it. Um, can I just say uh, the the impact of social media yeah. um, is incredible. It's made the world a very small place. Um, I think that had a lot to do with the fact that everybody became aware and became mm. aware so quickly. Mm. Um, it almost felt like we were all in the same space, uh, mm. regardless of where we were. We all knew about the same thing that was going on. We had some amazing coverage from the ground mm. um, by both Australian and American journalists. I mean, that helped because we got raw material. Mm. Um, and that a lot of the raw material, I guess, um, ignited in all of us uh, yeah. what we needed to make that uh, collective movement. Um, mm. So although unfortunately in Melbourne we are amidst of a, a very long um, um, lockdown, lockdown mm. um, we did not want to take this opportunity to go and protest because it yeah. would have defeated the purpose yeah. um, of wanting peace, of wanting to be heard, of wanting to show that we were of good character and these were mm. human lives. So we made um, a deliberate decision in line with the um with the you know um lockdown uh rules to um not protest um but i do hope that does not mean that our voices were not heard because of course a physical um process is always so much louder and has so Mm. much more impact Mm. um we did have zoom um protests we did have some people from um, the government there, some local people, some mm. um, people from, you know, the radio and media in general. Mm. So hopefully the word got out. But mm. can I just say the global protest, which we formed part of the agenda, but the global videos that came out, yeah. um, I watched a lot of them live, were just breathtaking. Yeah. Um, you know, from Berlin to um, San Diego to Beirut, um, I was just in awe of how much effort and time and energy was put in. Mm. Um, and what amazed me was the movement um, was was initiated and mm. led by the youth, the Asian yes. youth who are born um, overseas, mm. who are born in America, who are born in Germany, who are born um, in Australia. And that's what amazed me is that although they are not 
um, in the true sense, um, born in Afghanistan and an Afghan, they consider themselves an, you know, an American Afghan or an Australian Afghan. Um, their true sense of responsibility and empathy and love and connection is yet so strong. Yeah. That connection to country is still there. That connection to country is still there. The culture, the, um, you know, the language, the, the feeling of, um, wanting to give these people the voice Mm. to, you know, the voice to freedom mm. um, was very strong. And even if our voice specifically in Australia did not reach Scott Morrison and the Scott Morrison government, I feel like globally um, it made a, a significant impact, mm. um, you know, which is why um, so many, I mean, not all, but so many were evacuated. Yeah. Um, as, as, as torturous and devastating as the impact and the way it was done was, mm. there were still many, many, many people saved. Mm. So that was all because mm. the pressure was there. Yeah. And I think it doesn't end here. Like, yes, people have been evacuated and not everyone has, but there, there is still more to this. And like, I really like this quote by Shabnam Safa, the chair at the National Refugee-Led Advisory and Advocacy Group, who said, our government's response so far does not reflect the generosity and humanity of everyday Australians who overwhelmingly called for more support for the people of Afghanistan. This does not reflect the compassionate nation we aspire to be. And I think the Afghan community is understandably exhausted and heartbroken, and it's time for the non-Afghan community to step up and support you all. Like at the rallies on Saturday, the non-Afghan community showed up in solidarity, but we need to continue to show up day to day, like over the next few weeks and months. And I know that um, with people hopefully arriving in the next few weeks and coming out of quarantine, what can the non-Afghan community do to kind of support and continue to show up in this fight and in this journey? That's a good question. I've been uh, pondering on it myself, uh, you know, in the last two or three days once, um, um, you know, I had done everything else that I could do and I thought, what can we do at a local level? Uh, Now we've got to, you know, refocus um, internally. And uh, look, I think um, there is still a lot that needs to be done and a lot that will be done. Yeah. Uh, But in in the immediate future, I would have thought, um, people just need to continue the conversation because I know mm. a lot of these, um, um, I don't want it to be a phase. Yeah. Um, a lot of these things are a phase. I do not want this to be a phase. So I think um, most importantly for the non-Afghan community, I think they need to just continue to conversation, talk about it, um, talk to us when they meet us or, mm. or um, connect with us, whether it's via LinkedIn or via Facebook or, um, you know, Instagram or mm. just, just find us and, mm. and find out what we are up to, what we're doing, um, how they can do this, what they've got to offer because um, we, we do need some important connections um, and some important relationships to be made in order to be able to move to the next step. Mm. So I think resettlement is going to be a big part yeah. of this. Yeah. Um, some of the um, arrived refugees will have connections in Australia some may not. Mm. Um, there will be many underage um, um, arrivals with yeah. our parents. So um, I think um, 
we need to keep those connections strong. Mm. Um, we need to reach out if we can um, provide, you know, legal, medical, financial assistance, mm. advice, um, mm. mentoring. Mm. I find that um, the thing that we don't have and we need the most is great mentors, great yeah. leaders, people we can um, look up to and, mm. and, and matter. Yeah. Um, so the connections that matter, um, mm. I mean, we all need it. But I think a refugee without the language skills and um, the cultural skills to adapt and fit in and find their way both in work and education, in life in general, Mm. um, connections are so important. Mm. Mm. Moving countries is hard enough, let alone in this kind of situation. Like, you're right, it it is about providing that safe space, those connections and community, especially during lockdown. And... um, Hila, thank you so much for joining us today and just sharing your story and what it's been like for you as an Afghan to kind of navigate the last fortnight and still keep fighting and um, really, really appreciate everything. And as a non-Afghan myself, like stand in solidarity with you and we'll continue showing up because it's just been so inspiring to see the way everyone has kind of mobilized and fought and seen some like incredible results. So thank you so much for joining us today, Hila. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being the voice and for providing the platform to continue that voice. No, thank you. Thank you. Um, you listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. We just spoke with Hila, um, an Afghan-Australian, who was joining us today to talk about the current situation in Afghanistan and how the non-Afghan community can stand in solidarity with the Afghan community going forward. And um, for anyone that's kind of interested in keeping up to date with what's going on, um, I would really recommend following Action for Afghanistan. So you can follow them on their website, actionforafghanistan.com.au or even on social media on their Instagram handle and things like that. But yeah, um, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. 
a message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and up now we're speaking with Brendan Kennedy, a Tati Tati elder from Victoria's Northwest and he's the director of Tati Tati Cajun, an artist, a teacher and a linguist. And Brendan is joining us on Thursday breakfast this morning to talk about water rights and returning cultural flows to Maguya Lagoon, a permanent wetland on the Murray River in northern Victoria. And a new report produced by Environmental Justice Australia lays out a plans for how this important action can proceed. Welcome, Brendan, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, such a pleasure. I was just wondering um, if I could invite you first to introduce yourself for listeners and also just to introduce us a bit to the waterways and country that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, um, so yeah, I'm from um, I'm Tari Tari in um, Robin Vale, northwest Victoria. And yeah, the Murray River, as you can hear. I'm actually on the river at the moment. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> you can hear the, you might be able to hear the birds in the background and the, the wind. But yeah, so, you know, we're the river people, Murray River people, um, ancient people. We've been here for a long time and, uh, you know, we really rely, well, we more than rely on the river. It's our life and it's our, um, you know, we've been, we're a part of the river, our people, so, and the river the river's a part of us. So, um, you know, it's important that we, you know, we, we keep our, our country, Magoya Lagoon, the, the wetland part of the river. And, um, yeah, it's important that we, we ensure um, that it uh, mm. stays healthy. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually looking because I was trying to, you know, I knew kind of roughly where you were, but I thought I'd look at it on a map and have a look at some photos of the country as well just to kind of get a sense of um, the place, I mean, from a very long distance away. But it looks so beautiful and I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're actually on country and there right now. I was just wondering, like for a long time, we know the Murray-Darling River has been suffering and the river has been subject to intense political fights over um, water and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Obviously, it's a big river system. But um, I'm wondering if you could give us some context about the current state of the lagoon um, that's discussed in the report and just, you know, what's happened since since invasion and colonisation to that um, that site. Yeah, just for, for, the, for the river and, and particularly Magoya, it's, um, you know, they've... I suppose over since colonisation and you know the states and the Commonwealth have you know they basically turned our rivers into into waterways um, channel um, storage channels mm. basically irrigation channels and so what does that mean for all of our our wetlands and lagoons and lakes and creeks it's, you know they they've really made these, you know, important parts, you know, of our waterways. Um, they've made them, they've really made them redundant. They've made them, they've neglected. And for us as first peoples, these are, these are important, you know, sites. 
um, as I, I've said, you know, they're, they're the lungs and the kidneys and the organs of you know, the land. And um, and so the rivers and the creeks, they, they're the veins that deliver the water to the organs, you know, which are the lagoons and the lakes and, and the wetlands. So, you know, what's basically happened, you know, over time, that these important organs have been deprived of their, their lifeblood, you know, the, the river, the water, the rivers, water from the rivers. So uh, it's basically really... It's really just killing country, to be honest. Killing our country and and killing our waterways. Um, you know, for, for first peoples, for Aboriginal people. Um, you know, they talk about the, the health and life expectancy of Aboriginal people. Well, this is actually a direct link. You know, the, the depriving of our country of its water is and depriving Aboriginal people of water. Um, water on our country um, is, is directly having effect on our people's health, mm. um, but also the health of our our animals and our plants, our species of plants, and and um, all living life on our country is um, slowly being you know um, eradicated and even loss of Loss of species, eventual, eventual loss of of you know species that you can't find anywhere else in the world. But yeah, um, yeah so that's really what's happening, and it's, it's ongoing. It's relentless. Mm. And um, so yeah, you know, First Nations people, Kishlanders, we've really just we've had enough of it, and uh, we're speaking out. And um, so yeah. Yeah, thank you. I know it's sometimes, like, especially with something like the Murray-Darling River and the Basin Plan, and there's all this politics around it, but it is uh, just so important to remember for um, non-Indigenous people and to remember that this is, this is um, not just, this is not just a river, or it's not just a waterway, this is, um, yeah, your country and very crucial to your community and the health of your community and your people. So thank you so much for, um, yeah, highlighting that. I wanted to talk about this report that Environmental Justice Australia has released, um, and they made it, they wrote it, you know, for the Tuddy Tuddy and Wadi Wadi community and for the Murray and Lower Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations organisation, um, and it lays a legal pathway in, to achieving uh, cultural f- flows for the Magoya Lagoon. Um, before we just go on to discuss the report, I'm wondering if you could talk about what cultural flows are and also what um, returning water would mean for country. Yeah, um, cultural flows are, are water that is it, it's owned by our, our nation. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's owned and it's, it's, of a, it's water that is of a... Um, you know, the quality of the water, the amount of the water, um, it's determined with First Nations. And it's of a, um, you know, it's, it's to meet our cultural, spiritual, economic and social, um, and the, 
it's, it's, it's watered that down by our people. And there's a big difference between cultural flows and environmental flows. But I must, I must make it clear now, there are no nations in the Murray Island Basin that have received cultural flows to the date. Mm. So it, it, it just hasn't happened because based on the Commonwealth has not. They have not set aside water for First Nations people at all. We don't have any water. Um, so no, there's no water that's made available for cultural flows today. This is what we're trying this is what we're trying to achieve, to get cultural flows. Yeah. But, yeah, but it's, 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 environmental water is different. That's water that's owned by the, the governments. But cultural flows would be water that's owned by our Aboriginal people, First Nations, and we, and it's, and it's, we deliver the water. And it's to meet our, all of our needs and for our country. Yeah. So important in terms of self-determination and um, thank you for also, yeah, pointing out that difference between environmental flows and cultural flows. And, yeah, I know that the government has been talking about cultural flows, but um, so so crucial to know that they haven't actually delivered any of that water. So I'm wondering, um, you know, from this report, if there's things, next steps for the Tati Tati in terms of this fight and what you're kind of asking government to commit to or how you're proceeding with the fight now. Yeah, we have the Environmental Justice report from Magoy Lagoon. It's a, it's a legal report. It sets, a, it sets out how governments can actually... Can actually deliver um, uh, cultural flows for, or you know, it sets out the mechanisms to be able to do that. And so it's a how-to guide for government to use. Um, so it's really up to government now to really show some goodwill now and you know, and, and deliver water for the Lagoon. We have our cultural flows management plan for Magoya Lagoon, Adikadi Kachin. And so we have two very strong, clear documents there that, that there's really no reason why government can't um, you know, deliver or create water off um, create access to water for us to get cultivated in Magoya. There is there's just there's no reason at all. So you know, we've articulated and we've, we've, we've shown how it can be done now. It's just up for them to hand over water to us. To deliver that. So, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You've given them all the tools they need. I mean, if they if they needed them, they've got them now. So it's time to step up. Hey, um, I was wondering just to finish up if you could just talk about. I know you were saying that there is no First Nations group um, along the Murray Darling that has these cultural flows. So how could uh, you know this this model be? like cultural flows be a model for other First Nations groups and also is there ways that um, community can support you um, in solidarity? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, in supporting us in solidarity, there is on the Environmental Justice Australia um, website. They've created a, a website for us called Magoya Lagoon. Um, but on there, you can, there's an email, a letter there that everyone can, can just uh, be a part of and send off to the government's. Um, yeah, definitely this cultural flows management plan that we've created for Magoya Lagoon can be, can be applied, um, by other nations anywhere else. And, and, you know, the cultural flows for Magoya Lagoon would, for Tati Tati, would most likely be different, um, for another nation's cultural.
cultural flowers for their watering sites, cultural sites. So, yeah, it can be, um, but it can be applied. Um, and certainly we hope if we get this through, then it's going, it's going to, you know, it, um, inspire other other nations and, and for them to say, well, hey, Paddington got cultural flows for Magoy. And why can't we have cultural flows for our waterways in our, in our nation and country? So, yeah, we hope that, yeah, this, this will definitely inspire. Um, so there's really, you know, it's, this is what First Nations people have been calling out for for a long time now. Um, so, you know, it's, it's up to the government. Now, we're leading the horse to water. We want we want the horse to have a drink of our water. That's right, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's what we're saying. So come on, government. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's really great that people can also send that letter. So we'll all share that on our um, show page and social media as well. Thank you uh, so much, Brendan, for taking the time to chat to us. Um, and, yeah, I really, really hope government's listening up to this interview and to all the work you've been doing um, in getting cultural flows for Magoya Lagoon. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate this time. Thank you. That was Brendan Kennedy, a Teddy Teddy elder from Victoria's Northwest, director of Teddy Teddy Cajun, an artist, teacher and linguist. And Brendan was joining us this morning to talk about water rights and returning cultural flows to Magoya Lagoon. You're on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are just going to go straight into our next interview. So I'm joined by Kristen O'Connell, who is a researcher and policy policy worker at the Anti-Poverty Centre. And Kristen's joined us to speak about the ongoing need to raise the rate and pay people to stay home, provide updates on the Mutual Obligations Bill, and also on the Anti-Poverty Centre and People with Disability Australia's joint submission to the inquiry into the disability support pension. So hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for making the time. You're reminding me of uh, how busy I am. <laughs> you you really never stop. Yeah, I mean, um, the government doesn't stop hurting people, so unfortunately there's not a lot of time uh, to rest. Yeah, that is true. I mean, speaking of, let's just jump straight into it, beginning with that article that was published in The Guardian yesterday that you wrote with Jay Coonan, who's also from the Anti-Poverty Centre, and also unemployed activist Jeremy Poxon, who volunteers with the AEWU. So... Um, you spoke about the ongoing need to raise the rate, and I was wondering if you could you know, clarify that in light of the rise in cost of living identified in the most recent Henderson Poverty Line report, and also clarify what the Henderson Poverty Line is and why it's a useful way to look at poverty and uh, deprivation in Australia. Sure. So most poverty lines that people talk about are based on a percentage of median income. Um, which isn't very useful if median incomes aren't very high because obviously the cost of bread is not related to how much income we're getting, really. Um, so the Henderson Poverty Line was established um, following the Henderson Inquiry in the 70s, and it was based on the amount of disposable income you needed to cover the basics at the time. Um, it has been tracked uh, and been um, adjusted based on things like wage rises and um, the consumer price index, things like that, uh, so it is to some extent a re- relative measure, but it is based on how much you actually need to live. So that's what makes it different. It is also what makes it higher, which shows us just how inadequate some of those other measures are. But I would say it's not perfect. And one thing we um, do push for is an updated poverty line that fits the purpose in the 21st century. Obviously, families and the world and technology looked very different in the 70s, so we do need a new one. The latest figure is um, about... Oh, sorry, I've dropped it. Um, so we've just had it seen it gone up by $15 a fortnight um, 
for people who think that doesn't sound like very much, um, the rate is still about half the poverty line. So when people have uh, $15 extra pressure per fortnight on their um, unemployment payment or their other income support payment, it does make a big difference. And for example, the job seeker payment on average has tended to take about three years to increase by $15. So to see the poverty line go up by uh, $15 over the course of three months, which is how long it's been, um, mm. is really distressing for a lot of people. And unfortunately, that's not an unusual increase, right? Like that's a pretty, um, not too much of an outlier. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it, it's just been ridiculous to see that the job uh, job seeker COVID supplement hasn't been reinstated or the rate hasn't been tangibly raised, um, you know, over this year, considering that we're all back in lockdown and, you know, it was below the poverty line anyway. So um, I was just wondering if you could quickly touch on why living in poverty is not COVID safe and some of the additional or exacerbated inequalities that unemployed people have been experiencing during this year. Yeah, when you live on half the poverty line, you come up with so many workarounds to stretch that money as far as possible. And it includes things like going to public spaces to be in more comfortable environments, like in winter, heated libraries or shopping centres or air-conditioned in summer. Um, It means seeing uh, friends and family who may um, cook meals for you so that that's one less meal you have to find money for yourself. It means getting the cheapest of absolutely everything so that when there is financial pressure across the whole community, those cheap goods disappear and so you can't absorb the higher cost of um, something that costs a little bit more. So your canned tomatoes going up by 50 cents is a really big deal. Um, A lot of people are using prepaid um, or low data plans and obviously being at home means you spend more time Um, using your devices, that costs money, electricity bills go up. It is really extraordinarily expensive. And the big one is that you can't afford to get things delivered. Delivery charges are expensive and lots of people avoid them by doing big purchases. So if you don't have the money to do a $100 shop or whatever you need to get a free delivery, you're going to be going down to that shop regularly, which puts yourself at risk. But, of course, every single person in the community when they don't absolutely have to be puts everyone at risk of the virus spreading. There's lots of ways that it's not safe, in addition to just the fact that you can't live a healthy life Mm. when you're on half the poverty line. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you have so much more of a risk of exposure, and it ends up being people living in poverty and essential workers that are most exposed to the virus. Um, So... Uh, Moving to this disability support pension inquiry, um, the Anti-Poverty Centre and People with Disability Australia just put out your joint submission to the inquiry into the disability support pension. And could you take us through some of the key concerns that you identified there regarding the current rate of the DSP and some of the barriers to access and also how these should be addressed? Yeah, I guess we would start... We started from a position that the disability support pension shouldn't be viewed as just another unemployment payment. Over time, the changes made to the DSP have seen the government try and use it more and more as a tool to push disabled people into the workforce. And, of course, there are not there are lots and lots of unsuitable jobs out there um, that can put people at harm. Um, I myself am on the DSP, and when I am in wage work, uh, it's very, very bad for my health. And when I'm not in wage work, my health is a lot better. So the DSP is supposed to be a wage replacement, and that is the principle on which we based our submission. Um, There is research that shows the cost of disability to have the same standard of living is about 50% higher 
than the so, so so if we're talking about the poverty line, the Henderson poverty line being just a bit under twelve hundred dollars a fortnight, it's about eighteen hundred for people with disability. Um, won't surprise anyone to learn the DSP doesn't come anywhere near that. If you get rent assistance and every supplement you can get, um, you get a bit under twelve hundred dollars. So um, we've certainly put in there that we need to see the um, the rate of the DSP tied to a poverty line plus plus 25% as a starting point while we do that work that I talked about earlier of coming up with a sophisticated measure of poverty for the 21st century that also looks in more depth at the cost of living for disabled people specifically. Um, we also, I, you know, there's a big problem people might not be aware of. Um, there are a few hundred thousand people on unemployment payments who are disabled and aren't on the DSP because of the barriers to access that you mentioned. So it costs a lot of money to get the reports that you need. Um, your reports have to be less than six months old, your medical evidence. Um, it requires specialists who aren't free and don't fully bulk bill. When you're on the job seeker payment, you can't afford those at the best of times let alone afford to get them all within a six-month period. Um, if you do manage to do that, uh, there are lots of hurdles. My, in my case and in what we hear across so often from people anecdotally um, and is borne out in the data is that you basically get rejected immediately and then if you... Lots of people trust what Centrelink says, but then if you question it and you start to appeal, you find that actually you are eligible and they rushed it or they made a mistake... Um, and so mm -hmm. eventually you, you might get on. Lots of people don't make it through that process. You may get put on a program of support, which is essentially spending 18 months proving that you're unemployable by doing mutual obligations. And it's very degrading. Um, it, again, is harmful to people's health. And it is just a way of the government saving money by delaying putting people on the DSP by 18 months. Um, mutual obligations apply to people on the DSP if they're under 35. Hugely discriminatory. Um, it obviously makes no sense. We don't get... Uh, more, we don't necessarily get more disabled based on our age. Obviously, some people have conditions that deteriorate over time, um, but it's ridiculous to have people going and doing these punitive mm. activities, threatening them with payments being cut off. Um, so that, those are some of the many issues. Um, they, they really had a strong focus on employment, and we went in a bit of depth into that too, um, but there are just so many issues. I mean, we ended up with 60 recommendations. Um, it's extraordinary how complex and also how problematic the design of the DSP is. Yeah, it is a massive submission, but also a really rigorous one. And I recommend people to, uh, I recommend that people go have a look at it on People with Disability Australia's site. And you can find that by looking up the Anti-Poverty Centre or People with Disability Australia. They've been posting it across their social media. Um, now, just Quickly, to wrap up at the end, you mentioned mutual obligations, and I was wondering if you could give us a quick update on the mutual obligations bill and also how the government has sort of, oh, my notes are... My notes are very leading, so I'm going to just say um, the update on the mutual obligations bill and how the government sort of progressed since the RoboDap scandal. Yes. Um, I would just say to anyone out there who has mutual obligations, if you're in lockdown right now, they are suspended, and you don't have to do anything until... Um, their return. So look on the department website for information about that. Um, the government is trying to rush through a bill that is incredibly complex. It is hundreds of pages of changes to some of the most um, important legislation in the country because of how it affects our ability to get those poverty payments. Um, the bill does a really large number of things. It uh, formalises technological decision-making processes. Um, it changes backdating to payments so that some people will wait longer to get their payments 
particularly people who try to take time to understand their rights before signing a job plan, um, it will divide people into two classes. We will have the uh, people who are deemed employable going into online services and people who aren't deemed employable or who've been unemployed for longer than 12 months put into uh, the quite disturbingly named enhanced services, which will be similar to what um, employment services is now, um, but you will have more unwanted attention from your job agency. Um, it will continue all of the bad parts of the current system. They will introduce a points-based approach, and again, that computer decision-making will be important there because you'll fill out um, something online and it will decide what your requirements are based on that. Um, there's a lot of problems with this, and I mean people with disability, people with low digital literacy, older people, people with limited access to technology or only access to old technology are going to be relying on digital processes that are badly designed. Um, we know that mm. the government systems are terribly designed. They're continually failing. Um, and we're constantly hearing from people that they're confusing, they don't know how to use them, and we have no faith um, that that's going to be any better. So it's not looking good. Um, the Labor Party and the crossbench need to be pressured to block it. Again, you can follow along um, with our campaign and the Australian Unemployed Workers Union campaign um, online and join us to try and get that thing blocked because we need huge reform on mutual obligations yeah. if they're going to remain. Um, and that's the only way we're going to get it is by stopping this bill. Yeah, and um, also for listeners that want to learn more, uh, Asher Wolf wrote an excellent article called Did the Government Learn Nothing from the RoboDebt Scandal published in the Canberra Times yesterday, so I encourage people to read that too. Now, Kristen, thank you so much for wrapping all of that up into such a condensed, neat little package for us. Um, really appreciate your work, and thanks for coming on again. Thank you very much, Priya. It's a pleasure as always. And that was Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre who joined us to speak about the ongoing need to raise the rate, pay people to stay home, and provided updates on the Mutual Obligations Bill as well as the Anti-Poverty Centre and Disability Australia's joint submission to the inquiry into the disability support pension. And I think that's about all we've got time for today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Hey, Rosie. Yeah, I mean, that was a full show and um, props to Kristen for yeah, achieving that very condensed package as always. Um, but yeah, I I don't even know if we've got time for a rundown. I don't think we do, but I do know that it is Rosh Hashanah on Monday, I believe. It is true. Yes, I will be on Zoom uh, with my family eating gefilte fish. Yeah, well, I just want to send, uh, yeah, happy Rosh Hashanah to uh, everybody that is going to be celebrating on Monday. And um, once again, sorry that it is in lockdown. Hey, what can you do? Um, everyone, stay safe, and thanks for joining us again on Thursday Breakfast this morning. Yes, and get vaccinated if you can, and once again, check those exposure sites. But until uh, next week, take care. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.